Thank you for tuning in to Betrayal Trauma SOS. I'm your host, Jenny Brockfink, and I am so grateful for the opportunity to learn with you today. What is your truth? What you have to say is valuable, and today we're learning why it's hard to convey important messages, along with various ideas and techniques to make it safe to share important messages for both you and the listener. Let's learn together. While this episode is geared towards those who are struggling with betrayal trauma, most things that I share today can be applied to many different scenarios. All who are seeking to find their voice and are open to learning new ways of communicating will likely find things of worth in today's episode. I speak from personal experience and not as an expert today. This program should not be used in place of professional advice. A shout out to people who generously offered me resources and allowed me to process thoughts about today's episode. Truly grateful to be part of a community that turns around and helps others through things that are reminiscent of their own struggles. I appreciate seeing the grace of God in what you offer to me and to others. Humbled, grateful, blessed. Sometimes we have a message to convey that is very important to us, but it's as if we hit a wall when we try to communicate it. Have you ever felt highly elevated when faced with a hard conversation? I know that I sure have. Hard things are going on with our bodies, and this can happen to anyone. The book Crucial Conversations by Patterson, Granny, McMillan, and Switzler discusses this, and I like what they say. Quote, your body is preparing to deal with an attacking saber-toothed tiger, not your boss, neighbor, or loved one, close quote. For those of us who suffer from trauma, this physical response can be even higher than for the average person. Being aware of this can be helpful in handling things in better ways. For trauma sufferers, more is going on inside the brain. For more information on the trauma caused from betrayal, I invite you to listen to Episode 2 of the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast titled, Betrayal Trauma, What Is It? From Bessel van der Kolk's work in The Body Keeps the Score, we learn that one of the biggest trauma triggers is to feel unseen. It's not hard to see that this combination of being in a highly elevated state, plus the common trigger of being unseen when our message isn't received or is maybe rejected altogether, is a possible recipe for more emotional damage, and for some of us, more trauma. Let's figure out how to minimize collateral damage. The good news is that there are tools to better communicate so that there is a better chance that our message is better received, and we feel seen in the end. The basis of this episode stems from a talk given in the April 2020 General Conference for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Bonnie H. Carden, who is the Young Women General President, told a personal story that had me on the edge of my seat. She talked about a time when her family hosted an apostle named Elder L. Tom Perry when she was 10 years old. Late that night, her mother asked if she had fed the chickens, and her cute response was that maybe the chickens should fast that night. She didn't want to leave the company of the apostle. Of course, that wasn't acceptable, but Elder Perry had heard the exchange and offered to accompany her, along with his son, to feed the chickens. I'll read from her own words now. Quote, 
Oh, what an absolute joy it now became to feed the chickens. I ran to get our large yellow flashlight. Excited, I let out skipping over the well-worn path to the chicken coop. With flashlight swinging from my hand, we crossed the corn patch and passed through the wheat field. Reaching the small irrigation ditch that crossed the path, I instinctively jumped over it as I had done many nights before. I was oblivious to Elder Perry's efforts to keep up on a dark, unknown path. My dancing light did not help him see the ditch. Without a steady light to see, he stepped directly into the water and let out a loud groan. Panicked, I turned to see my new friend remove his soaking wet foot from the ditch and shaking the water from his heavy leather shoe. With a soaked and sloshing shoe, Elder Perry helped me feed the chickens. When we were through, he lovingly instructed, Bonnie, I need to see the path. I need the light to shine where I am walking. I was shining my light, but not in a way that would help Elder Perry. Now, knowing that he needed my light to safely navigate the path, I focused the flashlight just ahead of his steps, and we were able to return home with confidence. Close quote. It's easy to lead our audience to step in proverbial irrigation ditches, or make it difficult and or unappealing to see our light at all. Sometimes it's so hard to understand why this happens, and we can end up feeling unimportant, perhaps bulldozed over in conversation, or maybe we overcompensate and are the ones using tactics that we aren't proud of to get our message across. There are many other options as well. Will you join me in being fearless in a personal evaluation of where you are on this scale? From the book, Crucial Conversations, I love the concept that is offered that we can be 100% honest and 100% respectful. Let's explore that together. I am learning that I can do my best to show up to hard conversations and can navigate them better. I'm certainly still a work in progress, and what I share today is from my own experiences and studies to improve my own communication skills. These eight findings are what I am personally working on. Number one. Understanding what we hope to accomplish with our conversation. When we can keep the end goals in mind, we can stay on track. It's easy to get off track when emotions are high. Starting with the end goal can be very helpful. I'll share an example of a very hard conversation that I once had, and from my perspective, went well. Please know that I have had many failed conversations, and this is not to brag. It's just to give an example of good that can come from using the tool of having end goals in sight. For years, my husband had off and on gone to bishops from our church to confess his involvement with addiction. To say that his confessions were treated lightly for many, many years is an understatement. I do, however, have a firm and genuine belief that these clergy members are very good people doing their very best. They did not understand the depth of what my husband was dealing with, nor the emotional abuse that was accompanying his addictive behaviors. How could they? After all, I still struggled to put words to the abuse. The time came that a new bishop was sustained in our congregation. I could feel that my husband was not doing well in his addiction at that time, and knew that a confession would be coming. What would I do? My husband was obviously not taking his recovery at that time seriously enough. What could I do? 
Was I willing to watch the same pattern unfold of him going to give a confession, be slapped on the hand, and then given ample love and support? This had not worked for him, not even once. My eternal family was at stake. I decided something in the sacred space of prayer. I couldn't be silent any longer. The stakes were too high. One of the scariest things that I have ever done was to decide that I would meet with our bishop before my husband had the need. One of the last times that I had risked being in a bishop's office was with my husband. At that time, I just knew that this time someone would see how severe our situation was and we would get the help that we desperately needed. Without a full understanding of how severe our situation was, the previous bishop offered light reproof and much compassion for my husband. I felt abandoned and unseen. Trauma kicked in, and I literally sat shaking until our time was over and suffered extreme body ache for days afterwards. Knowing that this was a possibility, I set two goals for the conversation and did my best to stick to them. Goal number one was to make certain that the bishop knew that I was grateful for him and that I was raising concerns primarily because I was fighting for my family. More on safety later. Goal number two was to completely speak my truth, including the patterns that had happened with past bishops, and hopefully inspire thinking in my bishop that when my husband was next in his office, he might consider consequences more seriously. While I don't know how this experience appeared to my bishop, I can report that the goals that I set out to accomplish from my perspective were accomplished. When my husband next confessed, he was held accountable and it shook him. It helped him recognize that he needed to take recovery more seriously, and I consider this experience to have been a turning point for him and our family. When we are crystal clear with what we are hoping to accomplish, we can better stay on track in our conversations. Number two, organizing thoughts goes a long way. While this is an important concept for most anyone, for those of us who struggle with trauma, getting messages across can be particularly difficult. Part of the reason for that is that trauma fragments memories. More on that subject is found in the book The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk and in the second episode of Betrayal Trauma SOS. It can be helpful to organize thoughts so that we can better stay on track. Sometimes I've realized that I needed to think more deeply about something before engaging in conversation. In most situations, it is perfectly acceptable to step out of a conversation to evaluate before re-engaging. When I take the time to organize my thinking before holding conversations, they tend to go much better. Number three, knowing I am of worth and that the other person is also of worth. It is not humility to be less or more than what we were created to be. Brene Brown has an authenticity mantra that I love. She says, quote, do not shrink, do not puff up, stand my sacred ground. In regards to this mantra, I gained permission from my friend to share what she said, quote, I like it, because it prevents me from using shame to find my voice. Shrinking refers to feeling shamed and choosing not to speak up. Puffing up refers to shaming others in order to feel heard and get my point across. Standing my sacred ground is the middle of the two. I just say what I need in a direct yet respectful way. 
It's intended to allow me to be authentic. I don't have control over whether or not others understand where I'm coming from. As long as I'm not living in shame or projecting shame, I have to surrender whether somebody understands why I am speaking up. Close quote. I like this a lot because it's the concept of being shameless or shameful, and we want to avoid both of those and stay somewhere in the middle. Along these same lines is a thought from the book Beyond Breath by Soraya Bastian, as she says, quote, You have a right to be here. feels really good in your body. When you know this truth, there is no need for you to prove yourself to anyone. You don't need to take up any more space than you do, and you don't need to hide or pretend you aren't where you are, taking up less space than you deserve. Close quote. Episode 7 of the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast, titled I Am Sacred, goes into more detail about this concept. In reference to the conversation that I had with my bishop, I went into that conversation having discussed it at length in prayer. I knew that my Heavenly Father was pleased with the message that I had to share and with the preparation I had put into it as well. Therefore, I had a right to be there. Although it was terrifying, I was able to walk into his office with confidence that I had a right to be there because I believed that my mission was ordained of God. The second part was equally important to know. My bishop had a right to be there as well. He was the representative over our congregation, and I myself had willingly sustained him. His thoughts were also important, and my recognition of his worth helped me to find compassion and to not blame him for things that had happened in the past. It's important to know that in God's eyes, we are all on equal ground. No matter our station, we are all important. Internalizing this concept helps us to value not just our own thoughts, but those of others as well. Number four, learning to be aware of our emotional state and using tools to stay grounded. Much more on this subject is discussed in episode three of the Betrayal Trauma SOS podcast, but I will share a tool from Soraya Bastian's book, Beyond Breath, that I love to use to get to a more grounded place and can do this most anywhere. It's her 3 by 3 back pocket tool. I'll describe it in my own words in case it's helpful for anyone else. Basically, I plant my feet and feel the earth beneath me. I then close my eyes if I am in a place that I can do that and pay attention to three things that I can hear, such as the wind or traffic or my breathing. I then think of three things that I can feel, perhaps my jeans, a rock that I often keep in my pocket or my hair brushing my face. I then open my eyes and find three things that I can see. A therapist of mine who uses this tool in her own life says that when trauma is severe, it is more helpful for her to pick out specific things for her brain to focus on. Perhaps she will look for three things that are the size of a quarter, or maybe that are rectangular in shape. Whether we are highly elevated due to stress or trauma, Becoming grounded can be a wonderful tool for being able to gain emotional stability and be able to re-engage in conversation from a more neutral place. Number five, consider safety. In the book, Crucial Conversations by Patterson, Grenny, McMillan, and Switzler, there is an excellent chapter regarding safety. They recommend safety first, and I agree. Many of the concepts I have already offered have elements of safety in them. Maybe consider with me what it feels like when we don't feel safe. 
From page 59 of Beyond Breath by Sarai Bastian, she says this about safety, quote, When I feel unsafe, my body stops moving. I feel myself close up, and I can no longer make eye contact. In my unsafety, it is hard for me to use my voice or express myself in any way, close quote. I relate with her description of what happens when she feels unsafe. Perhaps consider what that looks like for you. If I get to the point of unsafety where I am not communicating or am maybe highly elevated, then I need to reestablish safety for myself. I might need to use a boundary, which I discuss later, or I might need to let the other person know how I'm feeling, something else in regards to safety. If trauma hits me hard in the course of our conversation, I will likely need to end such a conversation. This isn't to put blame on anyone. It's simply that my system is overloaded, and to push into a conversation while in such a state will likely create greater damage. It's also important that we create safety for the other party. In the book Crucial Conversations, the authors talk about the use of contrasting. Basically, if we see that someone is feeling unsafe, we let them know what we don't mean. For instance, if someone is showing signs of defensiveness, we can step out of the conversation and say something like, please know that I'm not blaming you. I'm just looking for a way to move forward. Addressing concerns of safety before continuing is crucial. Also, if you'll remember my conversation with my bishop and that my first goal was to make sure that the bishop knew that I was grateful for him and that I was raising concerns primarily because I was fighting for my family. I credit much of the positive outcome of that conversation to the fact that I did offer safety to the bishop by keeping hurt and bitterness out of our conversation while keeping gratitude and authenticity in the conversation. Number six, consider that their response is about them. From the book Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg, he quotes Eddie Hillisum in Eddie, A Diary, 1941-1943. In it, she talks about not being frightened, even when a Gestapo officer yelled at her. I love her confidence as to why she did not experience fear. She says this in part, quote, I felt no indignation, rather a real compassion, and would have liked to ask, did you have a very unhappy childhood? Has your girlfriend let you down? Yes, he looked harassed and driven, sullen and weak. I should have liked to start treating him there and then, for I know that pitiful young men like that are dangerous as soon as they are let loose on mankind. Close quote. It's so easy to take things that are said personally when we can see that a lifetime of experiences make up a person's ideas and responses. It's easier to realize that their response is about them. In the Lifestar group therapy program I participated in, I did a trauma egg where I categorized the main traumas in my life, drew them as part of an egg, and presented them to my group. I cannot begin to say how helpful this was, and one of the benefits that I greatly appreciate was self-compassion. When my group kindly pointed out the patterns of personal traumas, I could see why I had responded in certain ways. Everyone has their own traumas that they have experienced. When we see unhealthy responses through a lens of compassion, it frees us to not take things personally. Of course, this takes practice and is easier said than done. It's okay to be a work in progress. Number seven, consider boundaries and conversations. 
I'm planning a boundaries episode soon, so stay tuned for that. But I want to talk about boundaries and communication today. For those of us that have suffered significant damage, we often are desperate for others to see what we are going through. I was pretty crushed to learn that many people couldn't understand the significant events and the subsequent damage that I had suffered. I had to learn that I don't share everything with everyone. These days, I strive to have gated amounts of conversation. This means that I might share a small part, evaluate their response, and if I feel safe, then I might open up another gate and share a little more, and so on. Another type of boundary that might be considered is that not every conversation is a good fit. A boundary might be to not engage in certain conversations with others. For instance, if someone is struggling with honesty, which is common in conversations with those who are struggling with addiction, I can choose to lovingly step out of such conversations. I also have a boundary to do my best to not participate in conversations where I am not valued. If, for instance, someone consistently talks over me, devalues me personally, or if they have an agenda that they are trying to proverbially beat into my head, it is freeing to have given myself permission to step away from such conversations, no matter who it's with. After all, we are all of the same value. Another reason that I might choose to not participate in a conversation is when the other party refuses to honestly see their role in conflict. I can have compassion on the other party. However, I also have compassion on myself. Not accepting this type of emotional abuse, even if unintended, is a large part of this boundary. In regards to my husband and some of the more critical conversations in regards to his addiction, we needed a third party to navigate those. A boundary to not talk about certain things without a third party has proved to be a critical boundary in the recovery of our marriage. Number eight, taking drama out of communication. Please know that the drama I am referring to is not the presence of high emotions. I can look back and laugh about when I first began therapy. My therapist asked me what my role in the drama triangle was, and I said, I don't do drama. <laughs> I had a very good poker face and didn't allow emotion to show, which was my definition of drama. Oh, how wrong I was, and I came to learn that it is easy for me to engage in all three elements in the drama triangle in a very short amount of time. Becoming more aware of my role in the drama triangle has been one of the best things that I have done for communication. The goal is to stay out of drama as best as possible. This is likely a lifelong pursuit, and the more I dig, the more evidence I find regarding my role in drama. It's often very subtle and difficult to see. The better I get at not engaging in drama, the healthier my relationships become. Matthew 5.37 says, But let your communication be, yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. My best interpretation of this scripture is to do our best to keep drama out of conversations. I will do an episode on the drama triangle later, but here is a little snippet. The drama triangle consists of persecutor, rescuer, and victim. As a note, please know that there is sometimes an actual victim. This is not the victim that we talk about in the drama triangle. Those who, for instance, are the victim of narcissistic behavior, as is common with addiction, are actual victims of this behavior. 
I'll save a majority of this topic for a later date, but will say that becoming aware of how we persecute, rescue, and victimize gives us the opportunity to evaluate with more caution how we speak. It also enables us to be more authentic with communication. One tip on this is that when I frequently use the word you, I am likely in drama. Phrases like, you did this, or if you just did A, B, and C, this would be better, or you made me feel blank. One tip for avoiding drama is from Brene Brown when she talks about using the phrase, the story that I'm telling myself is. This allows people to see that our conclusions aren't firm and that we are open to another truth. It gives the opportunity to clear up misunderstandings, and it allows us the possibility of learning more information that might help our perspective. If after listening to this episode, you realize that you are like me and have at times led your audience to step in proverbial irrigation ditches, I hope you can apply ample amounts of self-compassion. I genuinely believe that you are trying your best. Do you want to know why I believe that? Having made many mistakes in communication, I know that I have done my best. When I knew better, I did better. I am still learning and striving to do better, and I assume that you are as well. The best in me sees the best in you. This week's meditation will be on the Betrayal Trauma SOS YouTube page later this week. I want to give a shout out to my friends who helped me make this week's meditation regarding letting our light shine, something that I love. So Ariana Reese, who is a therapist trained life coach and is the host of the With Real Intent podcast, and Katie Willis, who has many qualifications in regards to meditation and yoga, plus a multitude of other things, a genuine thank you. I have loved sharing what I've been learning with you. Improving my conversation skills has proved to be a gift in my life, and I would love to hear if any of this has helped you. Next week, we are learning about denial. Remember to enter to win a Betrayal Trauma SOS First Aid Kit on the Betrayal Trauma SOS Facebook page. I select that winner May 19th of 2020, and I would love for it to be you. Betrayal Trauma SOS can be found on Instagram, Facebook, the meditations are on YouTube and at BetrayalTraumaSOS.com. Will you join me on social media? If you've enjoyed this episode, would you consider sharing it? Let's heal together.